0: We are building a religion. We are building it bigger. We are widening the corridors and adding more lanes. We are building a religion, a limited edition. We are now accepting callers for dependent keychains. Resist- this is the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach. I want to remind you of a couple of conferences coming up. Of course, we have RailsConf in Chicago in June, but we also have Canada on Rails happening in April, In beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. Great lineup of speakers, David Hanmeyer Hansen, Thomas Fuchs, Michael Buffington of Measure Map, Amy Hoy, bunch of other people gonna be there speaking. And whether or not you're going to RailsConf in Chicago, you should get out to Vancouver to Canada on Rails. It's gonna be a good time. So sign up now, pretty cheap too, under two hundred dollars US to attend. For the two-day conference, go to canadaonrails.com. Glenn Vanderberg doesn't look like a rock star, but after hearing him speak or reading his thoughts, he realized that if programmers have groupies, then Glenn must. I'm not going to ask him about whether or not he's living the rock star life, but I will ask him about programming. He's a regular speaker on the No Fluff, Just Stuff Tour, OSCON, and spoken at many other conferences also. Welcome. Thanks, Jeff. I'm glad to be here. Well, I first heard you at FOSCON, the free Ruby lectures that happened midweek at OSCON in Portland last year, and I have to be honest and say I was bored out of my mind when you were talking about Ruby to write domain languages. Somehow, maybe the anticipation of hearing why the Lucky Stiff and (laughs) Cartoons Flame and Music maybe was more of what I was thinking about at the time. Still, though, a lot of the ideas that you talked about have stayed with me as I've learned more about Ruby, which is more than I can say about many of the manual Kant classes I took in college. So for those of us who haven't had the epiphany yet, tell us what metaprogramming is and why you think metaprogramming and domain-specific languages are important for both Ruby and Rails developers?
1: Um, Well, first of all, so let me get get this straight. You saw me and Why the Lucky Stiff at the same event, and I'm the one you think should have groupies? (laughs) (laughs) No accounting for taste. Um, It's certainly true that a talk about metaprogramming um, isn't for everyone, uh, I do think it's an important skill for good Ruby programmers. Um, so, you know, I, I'm encouraged that uh, the content stuck with you and you found yourself becoming interested in it after the talk. Um, I, there are different words for it, metaprogramming, um, embedded domain-specific languages. Basically, the idea is taking your, your general-purpose programming uh, programming language and extending it with constructs that... that look and feel sort of first class like they're part of the language but they're tailored to the kind of software you're writing uh, at the time. Um, As for why it's important, the the best way I know of to explain that um, starts with a bit of digression so I'll try to make it quick. Um, Pretty high on the list of things that every programmer should read is this old paper from the 70s by Fred Brooks called No Silver Bullet. Yeah. Um, if you buy a recent edition of The Mythical Man Month, it's reprinted in there. In that paper, Brooks makes the claim that we're very unlikely to see any one new development in software that yields a consistent tenfold productivity increase. and uh, That claim has generated a lot of discussion over the years, uh, mostly from people who claim to have a silver bullet. And recently it's been used to refute the idea that Rails could really be ten times as productive as Java. And I think the jury's still out on that. But the really interesting part of the paper to me is Brooks's supporting argument. And it's kind of unfortunate that um, all the debates about silver bullets over the years have overshadowed that. He points out that uh, in, in every piece of software, there are two kinds of complexity. There's the essential complexity that's inherent in the problem you're trying to solve, and it's really impossible to imagine any solution to that problem that wouldn't be at least that complex, just because that's what the problem involves. But then there's the um, what Brooks calls the accidental complexity. I prefer the word incidental. The the incidental complexity that's required to adapt your general purpose computing platform and language and so forth, so that it's suitable for solving that problem. Things like infrastructure libraries, um, database interactions, data structure manipulation, and and other things like that all constitute that incidental complexity. They really have nothing to do with what a domain expert would think about when describing the problem to you but we programmers have to build all that stuff to solve the problem. In most real-world systems that incidental stuff is all sort of mixed up with the essential stuff. You'll have fairly low-level programming mechanics wrapped up in and around the crucial uh, essential logic that's a part of the business problem. And I think that actually introduces a third kind of complexity because the dissonance between the essential and the incidental complexity makes it hard to tell which is which uh, for one thing and it's also difficult to understand one in the context of the other so all that incidental complexity plus the dissonance from having the two things mixed together like that have a lot to do with why many systems are so much more difficult to maintain than they were to develop in the first place Um, so so that's The problem, and it's been uh, a problem in software forever, the best design systems have the two kinds of complexity well separated, and uh, domain-specific languages are the best way I know of to really draw that boundary and keep them separated. As Paul Graham puts it, you, you build the language up toward your program while you build the program down toward the language, and it works really well. One of the greatest strengths of Ruby is its fantastic facilities for extending the language with domain specific constructs like that. And if you're going to learn to use Ruby well, uh, you need to understand that part of it.
0: So, domain specific languages, domain specific languages trying to reduce that incidental complexity as much as possible. Yeah, or at least keep it well compartmentalized. And that does seem to be. A big thing that people appreciate about Rails, especially as it relates to the database, I've been surprised to talk to some people in the last couple of months and who've recently learned Rails, and it comes up and I say, hey, well, hey, well you know, in SQL, you would do this or that, and they say, well, I don't even know SQL, and that surprises me that someone could write a whole <laughs> website connecting to a database without knowing SQL, and yet, and I th- still think it's good to know, Even if you are using something like Active Record, but the complexity has been reduced enough that somebody doesn't even have to learn the technicalities in order to to perform at least some kind of minimal functionality. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Where's the balance with that? Like, for me, I look at when I've looked at AppleScript a couple of years ago, that in a way almost seems like it's a domain specific type language for regular desktop tasks, and yet it almost seems like it was too simple and trying to make it exactly like spoken language got in the way of actually being being able to structure it in a certain way, at least for me. Do you feel like there's a balance with that with domain-specific languages, or should you just go as far as you can? For example, some of the t- uh, behavior Testing frameworks where your actual tests just look like a sentence in English. Yeah, I think there's a balance, and uh, AppleScript is a great example of going too far. Um,
1: it the the problem is that it's so English-like in some ways that uh, you expect to be able to to get away with um, being vague or, or phrasing things in a way that. Uh, uh, English would let you do it, and then, but AppleScript is still a formal programming language with rigidly defined rules, um, although not well documented ones, and uh, and that just gets confusing. Um, notations need to be different. The if if you're if two languages are very similar to each other. Um, it's hard to keep them straight in your mind when you're programming in them. And that's one of the reasons, for example, that, uh, um, most of the, uh, it's one of the reasons there are so few JavaScript, good JavaScript programmers in the world is that, uh, the, the name JavaScript plus the, the syntax that looks almost like exactly like Java sort of led people to think that, uh, JavaScript was just sort of a dialect of Java, and they didn't really need to learn a new way of thinking to program in it, um, which certainly isn't true. But um, yeah, there's a, there's a balance. You you can't go too far. Um, I'm not sure there are really good rules right now for knowing what's too far and 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 what isn't. Uh, uh, it seems to be a matter of skill and taste, and certainly uh, David heinemeyer uh has great taste in that, and it shows in Rails.
0: But uh, um, I think we're still exploring that. Well, tell me a little about the specific mechanics of one of Rails' metaprogramming elements in Active Record. There's the has many and the in the belongs to, and I've been referring to those as macros, but they're not really macros. Looking at the code, it's they're part of a module that's inside the Active Record class. Briefly. How does that work? Are they called at compile time or when you initialize the class? If I was going to set up a class that behaved in that way, how do you go about doing that in Ruby?
1: Well, you're right. They're um th- Those methods, those things start life as methods in a module and they get included in active record base so that by the time you encounter them, they're essentially class methods. It's interesting that you call them macros. Uh, they certainly aren't very much like uh, macros that many people would be familiar with from the C uh, language tradition but um, they're actually similar in a lot of ways to Lisp macros which are more sophisticated and do uh, more advanced things but anyway Ruby's class methods are like Java's static methods in some ways but different in others in Ruby uh, when you're inside a class definition you're executing in a context where self refers to the class being defined so you can just call its class methods quite easily and uh, class definitions aren't uh, special declarations in Ruby like they are in some other language, they're executable code so those methods are called there, right there where they appear while the class is being defined and they do some cool things um, let's, let's just take hasMany as an example I don't remember all the, the nitty-gritty details, but basically after checking the options for for validity and everything, it uh, goes and adds a small suite of instance methods to the class that's being defined. Instance methods for accessing and manipulating that uh, association, that collection of associated objects. And if you read the doc for hasMany, uh, those methods are all documented there. And that's pretty much the way uh, for example, adder accessor uh, works, which has been a standard part of Ruby forever. Has many, uh also registers some callbacks so that when you make changes to the association, those changes will get saved when the object is saved. And um, if you specify the dependent option, it registers some other callbacks so that when the main object is destroyed, it'll clean up all the associated objects as well. And most of all, that's done by constructing strings of Ruby source code and then evaluating that source code on the fly to define the methods and register the callbacks and stuff. And I guess that sounds scary if you're not used to that kind of thing, but if you crack open Rails' source code and look at it, it's actually quite simple.
0: Well, since Rails already is, as you've mentioned, already is a domain language for website development and database access, how would one going out go about writing a Rails application using the principles of domain languages? Is that even possible or has the work already been done and and you just use what is built in?
1: Um, It's very possible and in some cases, some of that work's already been done, Um, but certainly not across the board. It's uh, just in a few areas really. Um, I think it's really desirable. I wrote a couple months ago about how to be really successful with Rails, and a big part of that is to not just use Rails as it's written, but to adopt its style for the code you write. You should build on Rails and Ruby so that it's not just a domain-specific language for writing web applications, it's a domain-specific language for writing your web applications in the domain you're working in. And, you know, like I said, there's a balance and we're not really sure yet how to, how to judge when you go too far. So maybe start out cautiously with doing that, but, um, it's still a, a worthwhile way to go. I'm no expert at doing that myself. Right now I'm trying to learn how to be really good at it. Um, one of the best DSL guys in the Ruby community is Rich Kilmer and, uh, when he talks about how he does that i just kind of despair he he says you know you know i just study the domain and learn how it works and i write down the kind of language i'd want to use to describe that domain and work within it and then i just go implement that in ruby and uh um makes it sound you know, so I, simple <laughs> <laughs> exactly and you know i'm sorry rich but uh, uh, right now at least i'm just not very good at doing it that way and the reason i think why is that I come to understand a domain by programming in it for a while. But fortunately, there's another approach, um, and it's the one that uh, David used to write Rails. By his own admission, uh, he wasn't an expert at DSL design when he started building Rails, nor was he really even an expert at Ruby. Uh, But as he was building Basecamp, he had a lot of discipline, and he insisted that his code be beautiful and expressive, and have no duplication in it. And when he'd write something that was ugly or too complicated or involved duplication or mixed low and high levels of abstraction, which I guess is another way of saying incidental and essential complexity in one place, he went in search of ways to make it better, and he ended up designing the DSLs in Rails a little bit at a time, discovering what the domain looked like as he went. Uh, One way to think of it is that he kind of dumped all of Ruby's dynamism and metaprogramming facilities into his refactoring toolkit, roughly roughly doubling its size and providing a lot of new techniques for um, refactoring uh, messy code. And that evolutionary approach is what seems to work for me, and I think it's likely to be the approach that most Ruby developers will find comfortable with.
0: So you don't necessarily have to start out at the beginning. You can after you learn more about the domain, you can go back over it and refactor to make it back more domain language-ish. I think so, and that's really encouraging to me because
1: um I uh I always learn a lot while I'm programming that I that I didn't know to start out with. And uh so it's nice that you can evolve Things as you go. But you've got to have that kind of uh, discipline and self critical uh, attitude about your code that um, David demonstrated when he was building Basecamp.
0: Well, moving away from domain languages a little bit, I it took me a while to connect your name and who you were and the fact that I'd seen you at OSCON, but I'd been reading your blog for a couple months and you. I've mentioned Seaside a few times, which was discussed on this show. You said that when your worst pain goes away, it doesn't take long to start being annoyed by the next worst. So it won't be that long before Seaside's particular strengths start to look really attractive to developers who've grown accustomed to Rails niceties. But for me, especially earlier this week, teaching Rails in a workshop, it's already... Hundred and eighty degrees different from what most people are used to, in a programming language for websites at least, and then Seaside is completely different. Is do you think Rails is, is kind of st- a stepping stone to that, or is most of that benefit going to come back into Rails? And are there things that Rails can learn and implement from the unconventional way that Seaside approaches web applications?
1: First of all, I was really delighted to hear Avi Bryant on the podcast in December uh, talking about Seaside. The work that he and Andrew Catton are doing with it is just absolutely brilliant. Um, if you haven't seen it, uh, Dabble, uh, I'm sure, you know, regular listeners went and explored it after he was on, but uh, Dabble is an absolutely killer web application and it really shows off the power of that framework. I think Rails has already learned from Seaside, or maybe they've both learned from the same source. Um, the way Seaside deals with HTML generation is very close to Rails's builder templates. And before he got into small talk, Avi was a Ruby programmer, and it's possible that he got that idea from the old Ruby CGI library that pioneered that approach and, and sort of led to the builder templates. There are several things that Seaside does that are really special. Um, the one that gets all the attention is the way it uses continuations to manage control flow across multiple web pages. Um, Ruby supports continuations and Rails could conceivably do something similar but there are some barriers to that. And I'll, I think I'll come back to that. Um, Seaside also plays nicely really really nicely with the browser. Um, it manages object state so that uh for example it's easy for an application to backtrack along with the back button, and um, it also automatically i mean with no effort on the programmer's part to support it at all uh forks the session if you open two browser windows or tabs so that you don't get the famous um orbits problem where uh on the orbit site if you it's kind of hard to explain but if you open two flights in different tabs uh, so you can look at them more closely, you can end up accidentally purchasing the wrong ticket because Orbitz thinks you're looking at the most recent one you opened. Okay. Um, and Seaside and apps just won't have that problem. One thing from Seaside I'd really like to see in Rails someday is the link to a block. Um, to describe it in Rails terminology... Imagine if in your template you could call the link to helper with some text to use for the link, but then instead of specifying URL parameters like um, the controller and action, you just supply a block to the helper. And the helper would generate a URL for the link and then save that block associated with the URL so that when the user eventually clicks on that link, the block gets invoked on the server side. You can think of it as kind of a miniature on the spot controller that's defined right there or action that's defined right there um where the helper's called right now. Rails would make you define the link in the template and put the processing for it in the controller and tie them together by use of a common action name and that's really nice i don't don't want to complain about it. It's great, but uh it's still a little more brittle than the seaside approach,
0: wouldn't it? That- Complicate the whole model-view-controller because then you'd have actual logic code in your views. Right.
1: I wouldn't want to use that technique everywhere in Rails, but it would be great in some places like um, the search actions used by autocomplete text fields. Okay. And other Ajaxy things like that. But um, having said all that, you can't just go and implement that feature in Rails without really changing Rails's fundamental philosophy. Um, with Seaside, Avi consciously chose to trade some performance and scalability uh, for increased developer productivity. And one implication of that is that Seaside stores a lot of session state, such as um, continuations and one-off blocks like that, waiting to handle individual links, in memory. And Rails's shared-nothing architecture uh, in contrast, doesn't keep any session data in memory across requests at all. So that's part of what makes Rails a real sweet spot for all kinds of web applications right now. It, it achieves, from what I have experienced, a significant percentage of Seaside's productivity gains, but it doesn't give up performance and scalability at all. Uh, so I think Rails can learn from Seaside, but we can't just steal from it. We have to uh, look at what Seaside achieves and, of ways to deal with those problems in a rails-ish way
0: well speaking of which rails has not only been good for programming but has been good for the ruby's language made it a lot more popular we have more and more books now coming out about ruby individually and also about rails but it seems possible that ruby could be cornered into just being thought of as a language that's good for website programming and not much else. Do you think that's a risk? Do you think that might happen? And what would have to happen in order to help people to understand the beauty of Ruby as a dynamic language and the ability to do many other things that dynamic languages can do?
1: I think that's actually a real
0: danger. And the history
1: of Perl illustrates that danger pretty well. Um Perl people know that you can do basically anything with that language, uh, except maybe read it. But for a while in the early days of the web, most people who had heard of Perl knew it just as the language you wrote CGI scripts in. And that sort of stuck. Outside the Perl community, many people still think of it as just, you know, the CGI language. Last year's O'Reilly Open Source Convention, it, it kind of felt like Ruby's coming out party. I mean, we, we had overflow crowds for every Ruby talk, and Ruby was mentioned prominently and favorably every morning during the keynotes, and, and in many ways, it was the talk of the conference. And of course, most of that buzz was driven by Rails, which is fantastic. Uh, Rails has drawn a lot of people to learn about Ruby, and that's terrific, and, and, and all the Rails guys have said frequently that Ruby is a huge part of why Rails is so great, um, and so that's good. We, uh, uh, and by we, I mean Chad Fowler and Rich Kilmer and I, who uh, organized the Ruby track at OZCon. we we want to continue that momentum at this year's OZCon. But our big challenge is to move from the year of Rails to the year of Ruby. Um, the, the talk submission deadline is February 12th, so if you're doing cool stuff with Ruby outside of Rails, pre- please consider uh, proposing a talk. Rails will still be featured prominently, of course, um, and it deserves that high profile, but there are definitely a lot of people doing other kinds of development in Ruby, and we want to show that side of our community as well. Um, The conference submission site is conferences.oreilly.com slash oscon, O-S-C-O-N.
0: And there's European OSCON as well. Do you organize that, or is that completely separate? That's completely separate. I don't... uh, 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 Rich and Chad might be
1: involved in planning for that one. I don't think they were last year, uh, but um, uh don't really know how that's being organized this year. I'm only working with the American version.
0: Well, finally, I'm sure there aren't many program programming languages you haven't at least taken a peek at, but if you were going to learn a new programming language in 2006, what would you be looking at? What kind of language would you be wanting to learn? There are actually a lot of
1: languages I've never tried but I, I do know more languages than most developers. Nearly every year I plan to new, learn a new language and uh, then I nearly always end up not having time and somehow ending up learning end up learning a completely different language uh, during that year in the course of my work. This year I do hope to have time to really dig in and learn a new language and it'll probably be Haskell or an, Maybe another functional language like Objective Camel. Um, I set out to learn Haskell a few years back, along with a bunch of people on the Pragmatic Programmer's mailing list. And um, I, as usual, didn't have time to, to follow through with that one Um, I think I ended up learning XQuery that year or something, but before I got too busy, I got enough of a taste of Haskell to know that it's a language that will stretch my brain in new directions, which is part of what you learn a new language for.
0: I'm sure for many people, they're going to be learning Ruby this year, and that's going to be a new language to them, and they're probably going to do it by trying to write a website in Rails. On the Ajaxian podcast, you talked about JavaScript and a lot of the different features of that, that people don't really understand, but you you dove into that language and and try to really understand what it was about. When you're learning a new language, how do you go about doing that? Do you start a project? Do you look at other code? Do you like to read a book about it? For people learning Ruby this year, what do you recommend for them to be able to not only just learn the functional elements of it, but really understand how it works?
1: Wow, that's a really good question. And uh, it's a hard one to answer because I think the process is likely to be different for, for each developer. Um, first off, the, the most important thing is to uh, get ready from the start to change the way you program to fit the language instead of uh, trying to make the language fit the way you have, have liked to program. There's an old joke that says you can write FORTRAN programs in any language, but uh, then you're not really getting the benefit out of switching to a new language. Um, so with that as a starting point, what I do when I start learning a new language, I do try to do it in the context of a real project. But I, I start by reading about it and taking note of things that are different from what I'm used to or that things that I just don't understand. You know, why are are those facilities there? Why did they do it that way? There must be some uh, presumed advantage to doing it that way instead of the way the other languages do it. And I'll have to figure out why the language designers thought that feature would be useful. For instance, um, in JavaScript and Ruby, you can add methods directly to objects, not just classes. To Java or C Sharp or C++ programmers, that's really weird. So... Ask yourself, what's the point of that? You know, is it something you would do all the time, or just occasionally in extraordinary circumstances? And all these Ruby people seem to be wild about these block things. You know, why are they? What are they good for? And how are they used in good Ruby code? Earlier, when I was discussing how has many works, um, there are a whole bunch of ways that Ruby is different that that played into that discussion. Uh, mixing modules into classes. Um Executable class definitions, evaluating source code at runtime, and things like that. After taking note of the differences, uh, as I start trying to program in the language, I'll try to stay alert for places where I could use those different features and I try to use them. Uh, I certainly won't recognize every opportunity to do that, and you know I'll start off writing. Uh, basically, an old uh, another style of code in the new language. But when I do see one of those opportunities, it it slows me down a little bit to to force myself to try to use the language the way it was designed. But uh, and and I I'm I'm going to make some mistakes doing that. But that's how you learn to use those features. It's kind of like learning a new word. If you want it to become a permanent part of your vocabulary, you're going to try to use it in real sentences as soon as and and as often as you can, at least uh, for a while. And, as I said, you'll make mistakes doing that, but that's part of how to learn something well. When uh, my friend Stuart Holloway was first learning Rails, he told me that he and his team were aggressively trying to use every feature to the hilt as a way to learn not only how to use the features, but also when not to. Um, The way he described it to me is that they were trying to make every mistake you could possibly make in Rails within the first six weeks, and... uh, that's a great way to approach the whole experience and um, finally it's important that as you're learning that you read reread and revise Uh, keep reading books blogs and mailing lists about the language or framework or whatever and after you've done some programming go back and and reread or skim the book again you'll miss some things the first time and on the second reading, after you've tried to program, some light bulbs will go on and you'll realize, oh, you know, I could have used this to solve that problem and, and stuff like that. Um, and read other people's code. I have a uh, a separate TextMate project in, in the editor that contains all of the Rails source code so that I can pop it up and easily browse and search it and see how uh, the Rails committers did things. And uh, then as you as you learn all this, revise the code you've already written because that reinforces what you've learned.
0: That's what I do. I've been using that plugin from Dwayne Johnson where you can click, if, if you have a stack trace from an error, you can click and it goes straight to that line in TextMate. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh, that works for the Rails source code as well. If you if, if there's a line in the original source code and you click, it'll it'll open yeah. up that particular method right to that line and sometimes can be educational as far as how the guts are actually working and how they decided to implement it.
1: Right. That's really, really helpful.
0: Well, I'm sure you'll be at OSCON, but what other kinds of conferences are you going to be up at in the next couple of months? Um, well, the uh,
1: No Fluff Just Stuff shows are are starting up in late February, early March, and I'll be doing one of those uh, in different parts of the country about every month. Um, Other than that, nothing in the next uh, couple of months. Um, I do plan to be at the first RailsConf, and I'm speaking at the
0: Ajax Experience,
1: which I guess is in May, and uh, I'm looking forward to all those things.
0: Good deal. Well, thanks for taking some time to chat. It's been very interesting. I really enjoyed it. This has been the Ruby on Rails podcast. Intro music by Cake. Closing music by Why the Lucky Stiff and His Thirsty Cups. Equipment donated by Samson Audio. Chunky bacon. Chunky bacon. Chunky bacon. Chunky bacon. Chunky bacon. Chunky bacon, chunky bacon, chunky bacon.